This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward with my co-host and the creator of the show, Tom Jokic. Christopher, as usual, we are digging deep into the interview archives. Sometimes the interviews are really clearly labeled with the date and the name of the interviewer. And sometimes, also, they're full interviews, so they're like 7 or 8 or 10 or 15 minutes of full-on interview. Sometimes they are just divided into clips. Sometimes it's written down what they are. Sometimes it's just a blank CD saying interview disc number 248. So in that case, I listen to it, and honestly, it's like Jeopardy for me. Like, I love watching Jeopardy, and I love listening to these interview clips to figure out who the heck we're talking to based on when they say, yeah, we've been around since uh, uh, since 1973, and when John joined, um, that was great. And then when um, when no- and then <laughs> yes. when when Norbert joined, and I'm going, there's a John and a Norbert in the group. So I look up, I Google it, or I try to figure it out myself, <laughs> and it's so much fun. I just love doing it. We, I'm glad you enjoy this. <laughs> Thank heavens, I really do. And so. I knew somewhere we had some Queen clips, and they were incredibly hard to find, but I found them. Now, that's the good news. The bad news is they're not Freddie Mercury clips, because I don't think Freddie did a lot of interviews uh, to promote Queen albums. So they sent out the other guys. Now... When the, one of the other guys is Brian May, you certainly cannot complain because Brian May was a good spokesperson for the band. So we've got three clips from him coming up, and we've got one clip from John Deacon, perhaps the least known member of the band, and it's great stuff from both of those guys coming up on Famous Lost Words. Tom, what else have we got on the show today? Well, Christopher, we've got a very early interview with Adam Levine of Maroon 5. It's from 12 years ago upon the release of their second album. Now, a lot has been said about Adam and the band, especially in light of the Super Bowl performance. And I know you've been chomping at the bit to talk about this. So I actually have moved this interview up several weeks so we can talk about them. Now, even though we may not be particularly huge fans of Maroon 5, this interview is very good. And we're also going to play a bonus clip from eight years ago in which Adam tells one of the best and funniest childhood stories you're ever going to hear from a rock star. Also coming up, one of my favorite segments ever, When Rock Stars Attack. And this one features many different artists all attacking the same group of people, critics. Oh, we're going to have fun with this. Now let's start the show with Queen. Now, I just want to let you know that Queen and Adam Lambert are going to be performing this weekend on the Oscars. And we got to talk about the movie Bohemian Rhapsody, which is up for five Oscars this weekend, including Best Actor and Best Picture. Yeah. What did you think? Well, I really thought that it was an interesting movie. There were some really major flaws in the movie and I know that there's and I'm not even talking about like fact checking because I know that some people are saying that this didn't really happen in this order and you know right, it wasn't right. I've seen that right honestly I kind of thought that Rami Malek spent the first 20 minutes in the movie just trying to keep his teeth in his mouth so I do find that yeah people kind, made a lot of that yes didn't they? for sure and but someone warned me going in just say look The teeth are a little bit of a distraction, especially at the beginning, but stick with it. And I did stick with it. And all in all, even though that movie did have some major flaws, I thought the movie was excellent. And it has deserved many of the awards that it has won. How about you? Well, I thought Remy Malek did a fantastic job as Freddie Mercury. The teeth didn't really bother me at all, I Mm -hmm. guess. I was ready to just bite it off and chew the whole thing. (laughs) Um, It really brought back the music and the excitement. You know, when you go to see uh, a biopic and it's sort of an artist that you have seen live yourself, 
to me, that's always the the first initial challenge once the movie starts is, mm-hmm. okay, I now have to stop trying to line this up with reality. But this movie concluded with a show that I attended, and that is Live Aid in London. Wow. And it was the culmination of the movie. Everything in that film led up to that Live Aid performance because of what a triumph it was for Queen. It sure was. Um, and they... Tom, they nailed it. It was just, it was everything that I remember about that event. So they obviously went back to some original footage and recreated, and there was some CGI, of course, and they did an amazing job. But also, I just thought um, the spirit of the music and the story of the band was captured wonderfully. There's always going to be, you know, edits in the Mm storyline. There were some things that were just downright inaccurate i agree with you but the spirit of it was all there and the performances and they just won a couple of golden globes for their troubles that's right and you know i agree with you 100 percent. and by the way the dvd issue of bohemian rhapsody includes an extra song and that is crazy little thing called love from live aid as recreated by rami malek and the rest of the guys in the movie so they didn't even include that so that's an added bonus so that's great and there's a whole segment on there about recreating Live Aid for the movie. So that in itself would be oh. excellent to see. Now, I don't know how many people rent DVDs anymore or buy them, but that is something that is definitely a bonus that a lot of people want to see. Now, I also want to make a point about this. So as of this, you know, as of us talking about this movie, the movie has earned $743.4 million. And I think there's a couple reasons. I think, first of all, that people love Queen. And people have heard that this movie is really good, and so they've gone to see it. But I also think there is a huge thirst for guitar-based rock and roll, for music that is Mm. big and loud. And I think that that's why people, that's one of the reasons why people are flocking to this movie. And this movie will continue to live on, and the music of Queen will continue to live on, and perhaps in an even bigger way now. And I think it really is to do, because we're, we're a little bit at a low point with rock music right now, and I think that's a tragedy, and I believe that the success of this movie is one of the reasons why people are embracing it so much, because it is a rock film. Well, you know what, that makes sense to me. And also, it's not just a nostalgia piece. Um, I know, kind of by accident, because my niece from Vancouver, hi Heather, and her two kids, who are eight and ten, were down visiting me. Um, and I and when the movie opened, and I really wanted to see it right away, and I said, "So, is it cool if we take them to this movie?" And she was like, "Yeah, sure." So we saw it in IMAX, <laughs> and the two kids. Loved it. They were riveted. They yeah. loved the story. They loved the music. The whole thing. They totally got it. Yeah. So I think it is a multi generational story. Absolutely. And that music is just so powerful, right? And I will, you know, I've gone on record on this show already saying that I believe that Freddie Mercury is the greatest singer, uh, the greatest rock singer of all time um, because of all the things that he could do with his voice and because of how convincing he was, whether he was doing a simple ballad and, you know, nothing was simple with, uh, with Freddie, but a beautiful ballad to, you know, opera to just out and out hard rock music. And, and then, of course, even the, the 80s stuff, which I wasn't a huge fan of, but Radio Gaga, which they did in that Live Aid performance, and that's the best version of that song. And, you know, he could do anything, and he was always great at it, and that's why I think he's the greatest singer ever. 
There you go, from 1980, Queen and Another One Bites the Dust. And that's the era from which this interview with Brian May is taken. Tom, in 1980, Queen released The Game, their eighth album, and one that was viewed as a departure from some of the grandiosity of their previous work. It was the first to feature a synthesizer. Believe it or not, in an era when synths dominated, they had created their massive sound with drums, bass, guitars, piano, and of course, vocals for days. Guitarist Brian May talked about what distinguished the sound of the game. He's got a lot more open spaces. Um, it's a lot different in many ways. It's more rhythmic than a lot of our early, earlier stuff. It, it has, um, that was really what we went for on the album. We don't try and re- reproduce anything that's gone before. Um, but you never know how it's going to get accepted. And the big surprise on this one was that it got accepted on the black stations as well, which is great. If you can expand your audience in any direction, it's always very nice. It's not something we consciously strive for, but if it happens, it's always very welcome. It gives us new blood, you know? So Crazy Little Thing Called Love was a hit. But the song that broke the album to a whole new audience was bassist John Deacon's song, Another One Bites the Dust. It was at the suggestion of, ready for it? Michael Jackson that it was released as a single. It went on to top the Billboard charts for three weeks and sold seven million copies, making it their best-selling single of all time. At the time of the interview, it was just starting to take off, and you can tell that Brian May had a sense of what lay ahead. It seems to be really going well at the moment. Yeah, the new single, Another One Bites the Dust, is giving it a big lift. Mm. And it it went platinum uh, about two weeks ago, so we're really hoping it's going to do better than anything well it's it's already better than anything since um news of the world i think it's about three years ago yeah it looks very bright very good you know that's very interesting because that was a big departure for them that album even though there are some great guitar moments on the game including the title track there are also many moments where it's just synth and there's that dance track with another one bites the dust and that really the success of that song really influenced what came next for queen which is both great because they thought they had found a new direction, but ultimately it didn't quite work out for them. So it is fascinating because I think maybe that that was the last great Queen album. You may be right. Mm -hmm. I saw Queen, as I mentioned, at Live Aid in July of 1985, and the performance was breathtaking. They had, at the time, people forget this, the unenviable task of following an inspired U2 set. Sure. But the crowd loved it. Mm -hmm. Brian May has called it the greatest day of our lives. He credits Freddie Mercury with creating the magic in that performance. Dave Grohl of the Foo Fighters said, Every band should study Queen at Live Aid. I consider him the greatest frontman of all time. Wow. Interesting quote, huh? Mm-hmm. In retrospect, we think of Queen's fans as being, well, if not rabid, then seriously dedicated to the group. Brian May had a more subdued image of their supporters. Most of our fans actually are pretty... Uh sensible people i say i don't think on the whole we get the kind of screaming worship that the sort of pop bands get you know we're a rock band and, and certainly a class to a queen act too which... well thank you very much <laughs> i don't know we, we aim we hope that people get off on the music you know we're not we're not up there contrary to what some people think it's not really a big uh, idolatry trip for us we would like people to enjoy the music and to get excited by it because that's what it's all about but I meet a lot of people in the street. I don't find there's any problem. You know, people come up and if they recognize who I am, then they say, hello, pleased to meet you. I enjoyed the show or I enjoyed the concert or something. Or why do you do this or why don't you do that? You know, and um, there's no kind of hysterical note to it, which I enjoy. I prefer it that way. Both of your feet are on the ground, I notice. 
Trying to stay that way, yeah. There you go. From 1980, that's Brian May from Queen talking about their album, The Game. Okay, so let's pick it up a few years later now with John Deacon, the bass player, who is doing press for the 1982 album, Hot Space. And it's a bit of a tougher sell because it's more synthesized with almost no guitars to speak of. Let's hear what he has to say. We've had mixed reaction to this album. Mm -hmm. I mean, we we still get a lot of requests to to do more heavy stuff, you know. But what happens is when we come to do an album, uh, we end up recording the songs that the people have written and the things that are people are into at the time mm-hmm. um but on stage they've been going down very well i mean we do staying power um calling all girls action this day that comes off very well on stage oh wow so he could see that there was a bit of a backlash uh to that album and it's funny because he kind of blames it on the fact that well these are the songs that we had because these are the songs that people came into the studio with but you also have to point out to John and the rest of the guys in the band that they chose that more synthesized direction. And that direction did not sit well with the classic Queen fans. And, you know, there are a lot of bands that fell into that, right? You talk about Rush in the 70s, mm-hmm. and then you talk about Rush in the 80s with way more synthesizers, and you can argue that that was not their finest decade. And the same thing, I think, happened with Queen, but they needed to remain relevant to stay on the charts and to stay popular and all that, and that's the price that they had to pay. And there were some great moments in the 80s for Queen, especially in 1985 with Live Aid, but there was also some down moments with them, and this was uh, definitely one of them. You know, you make a good point. I, I don't, I'm trying to think of, is it a matter of a calculation in order to sustain popularity, or is it just the desire that most musicians and creators have of changing it up somehow? Mm-hmm. Or... Is it the seduction of technology? Because let's face it, everybody got swept up in that. It was just a matter of how you use those tools that Mm -hmm. defined your music. That's true. And, you know, there's a few moments in certain songs. Like, let's talk about the song The Game. Do you know that the title track from, you know, play the game, play the game, that one, and with that hard rock guitar, and there's lots of synth in it. That That does not sound dated whatsoever. But you listen to a song like some of the songs off Hot Space, um, Staying Power and all those, and also Body Language. Those songs don't really stand up because they just sound of that era. And so it, mm. it's a really tough call because a lot of bands embrace that sound and it just doesn't quite stand up more than 30 years later um, than I think they, they had hoped it would. A lot of bands suffer from the same issues. Yeah. Queen on Famous Lost Words. What's next, Tom? Dare you say that my behavior is unacceptable So condescending, unnecessary, critical Great song, their very first hit, Maroon 5, Harder to Breathe. Take it away, Christopher. Tom, have Maroon 5 really been around for 17 years? Oh. And eight years before that as Cara's Flowers. Oh, dear. <laughs> well, they've got the catalog to back up their longevity. Six platinum or multi-platinum albums, three number one singles, including moves like Jagger, which broke the band to a much bigger audience. Christina Aguilera's guest vocal was an added treat, of course. Mm-hmm. Yep. But they just don't get a lot of respect. They jumped right into that NFL controversy by performing at the Super Bowl. And does Adam Levine's entrepreneurial spirit, which he came by honestly, by the way, his dad was the founder of a retail chain, but does it endear him to fans? Hmm. Probably. He's an actor, a TV personality, a guy with his own fragrance, his own menswear collection with Kmart. Well, you get the picture. Yeah, but he still can't seem to find himself a good shirt. (laughs) 
<laughs> or one that he'll keep on. <laughs> That's right. Anyway, the band are great together, and mm-hmm. he's a strong front man with a powerful and flexible voice and those well-written songs that just stick with you. Mm-hmm. Our interviews are from two different times. The first, with Levine and guitarist James Valentine, is from 2007 uh, for the album It Won't Be Soon Before Long. <laughs> and the extra clip, featuring a very charming story about parenting, is from 2011. That's right. So, is there music rock or dance or something else? Makes me wonder, when that came out, a lot of um, our listeners made reference to how it reminded them of songs from the 70s, 80s, in terms of the, um, you know, the dance sensibility to it. Listening to the whole record now, I would have to say that this record has a real... It's, a, it's, it's to me, a danceable rock album. Was that your intent in recording this? Yes, I mean, that was the only intention that we had <laughs> coming into the, the studio. Because the songs about Jane, it, it lacked in those sort of numbers. And so... As we were out touring, we numbers. That's so numbers. Numbers. So old timey. <laughs> that's a good number. <laughs> we're an old timey band, um, so we wanted to add that, you know, mostly so that when we went out and played live, that we could have some more uh, up moments during the set. Right. And also, you know, I think like Adam during the year leading up to the making the record was pretty much only listening to Prince. Yeah. And uh, Michael Jackson. So, I was on a steady diet of Prince and Michael Jackson. So, so that came out. And we were also listen. We were also, I think, honestly, believe that we were we were going out to clubs and dancing and having fun, and that was a huge part of that whole That's process, you know. And we hadn't really had a chance to do that in a long time because we were been working. So that really, I think, that being out and being out and about probably really influenced the the danceability factor. And although you're just launching with some of your live dates, I would imagine that that translates. Uh, into making this a really fun record to perform. Yes, and it gets more and more... I mean, it, it's definitely more challenging, uh, what we're doing now, because there's a lot going on. But once we get that under control, I think it is going to be so fun to play these these songs for people. Because it gets them moving, you know? Right. It doesn't get them swinging like the first record. It kind of gets them pumping their fists mm-hmm. and right on. dancing around and sweating <laughs> and things. So here they're talking about Adam's ability to write great melodies and hooks. Well, I mean, I think, you know, that's that's Adam's thing. I, I think I trace it back. I'm convinced that because... It's all the Beatles. Because, yeah, your mom forced the Beatles down your throat from a very early age. I think, like, that just became a part of his sensibility as a as a songwriter. And so that, that comes out in everything that he writes. They talk about the thrill of opening for the police. I understand you guys are opening for the police. Is this right? In Miami? Yes. Yep. When is that? On July 10th. Ooh! You, how excited calendars. are you guys about that? The fact that I know the date <laughs> yeah. means I'm excited because I don't know about what I... I couldn't tell you what I'm doing tomorrow, but... But, know. you know, you guys have already been a pos- in a position to tour when you did your last record with some great artists, some really big names. So, y- your experience with going in- into that with the police, how do you feel about that then? It's a dream come true. I mean, it's the ultimate, it's the open, it's the ultimate opening slot because they're my favorite band, you know, next to the Beatles. So I wow. couldn't possibly be happier. <laughs> you toured with the Stones for a while. What was that like? I mean, you got a glimpse into sort of that rock and roll life that maybe no, none of us would ever see so on a big scale. F- it's so far beyond rock and roll. It's not even rock and roll. It's like, you know, when you're traveling on your own 747. It's not reality. It's so interesting. It's such an interesting glimpse into their life and lives and into their world. And yeah, it's it's so crazy. It was just, it was just such a trip. I mean, it, the whole thing was just such a surreal adventure. 
Yeah, know? we were taken backstage and introduced to each member one by one in each of their own little worlds that they have backstage. And, and you know, each of their dressing rooms really reflected their personalities. You know, Mick had this very nice model. I was most down with Mick. Yeah, Mick was Mick was like watching the, the soccer or football game. Yeah, he had like game. multiple TVs on with like financial <laughs> networks and like the soccer game. <laughs> and like, you know, was putting on his shoes. And I'm like, <laughs> he's just Mick Jagger putting mm-hmm. on his shoes right. to play a show. It was really a kind of, it, it humanized them a little right. bit. You're like, okay, this is... Keith Richards' room was literally a bar. You know, it was, it was so, with like a deer's head yeah. and a pool table. And. <laughs> Are you hoping that some sort of intimate moment can happen like that with the police too? I would imagine. I yeah. would love that. I would just, I would. They're man, probably I, they're a little more, they're a little more down to earth. I think they're yeah. kind of just like you know. Mm. I, I'm sure it's much more of a show up and play type of a deal. Now, you guys, in anticipation of this new release and when the single came out, of course, you've been very busy with a variety of different kinds of promo. And I saw you guys on uh, American Idol. What was that experience like for you? Another uh, surreal experience. Yeah. Everything we do <laughs> is surreal, you know? Uh, yeah, they're, they're like, going out there and just seeing the ju- panel of judges in front of you. It was just funny, you know? You feel like afterwards they're going to critique you, tell you what you did wrong, tell you how you can improve. That would have been funny, actually. They should do that with, with yeah, big artists. Should. One of their great contestants on the show, because I must admit I watched that show, there's a guy named Blake Lewis that was on it and did a couple of your songs. Did mm-hmm. you guys ever see or hear those performances? I heard a little bit of it. It was a little weird. It's yeah. strange when someone else is doing your material because you always think about what you do differently. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's, it's fine, you know. It's flattering. It's flattering when someone wants to play your, your music. Yeah. And they, they love it enough. They love it enough to to stake their their idol um, ranking to stake it all on this one mm-hmm. song that we do wrote. Do you think that if you were trying to get a leg up in this business, I mean, obviously you guys are so far beyond that, but would you have ever considered entering something like that? I probably would have thought about it, and everyone, like, if, let's say the band didn't exist, you know, and I mm-hmm. we hadn't had any success, and probably people would probably said, like, oh, you can win, and all this stuff, and I probably would never have done it, because it's just, it's not my thing. Yeah, yeah. You know, I might have, I mean, I don't think so. Oh, funny how he doesn't think he'd ever be a part of something like American <laughs> Idol. Okay, so when I met him in 2011, they had just announced The Voice, which honestly just seemed like a cheap Idol ripoff. And of course, it turned into this massive hit. It actually eclipsed American Idol, and it made Adam Levine a household name to millions of North Americans. So what we thought was just going to be this kind of, you know, mid-season replacement that didn't do anything became this phenomenon. And some people still swear by that show uh, from week to week. You know, they sit down around the TV like people used to do and don't do very much anymore and watch it with their whole family. So it really is quite a success story. So this next clip is from 2011, and this is when we used to take about 100 listeners to Barbados every year for a week-long party to celebrate with our morning show, and we'd also take a band with us. And that year, nice. it was more than one. It was Jennifer Hudson and Maroon 5, and I think it was Canadian singer Susie McNeil that year. And it was so hmm. much fun. And Maroon 5 hadn't really had a big hit in a while, and they had just released Moves Like Jagger, which you said earlier featured Christina Aguilera. Say what you will about Adam Levine, but he's a terrific storyteller, as is evidenced by this tale from his childhood. I want to mention a story to you, Adam, that uh, I, I read online. Now you can tell me maybe this one's not true either. Are you on the internet? This, this is when, when you were seven years old. When you were seven years old, you lived and breathed basketball, and there was a whole story about when you were playing for the YMCA team. You were up 24, 23, 10 <laughs> seconds left. Your dad... It's all coming back to me. 
the Go visuals. On. Let's go back now. You want to tell that story? Yeah, I mean, it's just a silly story. When I was a kid, my dad was my basketball coach. And I was like maybe eight, seven, eight, something like that. And I don't know if you've ever watched a young kid's basketball game, but <laughs> like it's really uncool to overreact if you're the coach and get a technical foul, which my father did because he got angry, you know. <laughs> and... <laughs> And so he got, like, a technical foul at the worst possible time in the game, right? So these kids were kids. We're eight, you know. So all these kids are devastated. The parents are getting angry, you know. This kids, you know, hits the free throw. So now they're up by one point, and they're going to now win the championship game because my dad is being kind of an a-hole, you know. And, and, and they're kids. You're not, you know, it's not supposed to be the coach's fault that your kids are going to lose this game and be crushed, you know. And so my dad just looked at me, and he was just like, you gotta do something about this. And I was like, "All right, all right, Dad." And I'll never forget it. You know, it was five. It was one of those classic, you know, movie moments where they are kind of guy inbounded the ball to me, and I was I took some horrible. You know, I was a lefty, so I didn't have a right hand, so I just dribble into the corner. Uh, I mean, you're kids. You just have you ever they watched swarm. a kids basketball game? It's just little packs of yeah, children running right. around with yeah. the basketball, right? And I, I, I was like, all right, I got to do it. And I threw up some awful shot from, like, you know, the corner baseline. So awful. Off the backboard and the lights and the wherever, whatever it could bounce off of it, bounced off of it. And it went in. And it was one of those, like... <laughs> and my father, like... My father, like, hit the ground and started, you know, praying. And it was just, like... I saved him. I don't know how, but I did. And, and uh, I'll never forget. And that's one of those moments because I was a really shy kid. Yeah. And I, was, I was like, I was like, huh? Wait a minute. I'm, I'm gonna like this. I like I feeling like this. this way. I like being liked. <laughs> I'm gonna start a band. There you that go. is a great story. <laughs> that gonna, is superb. I'm gonna start a band. I love that, and I love the way he tells that story. <laughs> so you and I obviously have a certain grudging admiration for Adam Levine's ability to write strong melodies. Um, and great pop hits. But we also have our reservations about them and him. I think, Tom, um, Maroon 5 sort of have a Bruno Mars problem mm. in that, you know, they make great hit records, but the day they put out an album without a hit on it, they're gone. I mean, I would say the same of Katy Perry. I know I mean, right. people are going to hate me for saying these things. Mm -hmm. These are artists that make wonderful hit singles and sound great and have, you know, just a huge amount of talent. But I don't know that audiences connect with them in a sort of long, meaningful way like they would with, hmm, help me, like a Coldplay or even Adele or, or Taylor Swift, somebody like that. Sure. Where, you know, the fans are in sort of no matter what happens through the ups and downs of that artist's career. I agree with you because I think they make great songs, but I don't think the songs have lasting power and I don't think they deeply connect. Like you said, like an Adele does or a Taylor Swift does, and those people will follow those artists for as long as they make records and for as long as they, mm -hmm. the listener and the, and the artist, as long as they live. Whereas I do think that... Maroon 5 have been kind of nimble enough to stay with the times, and they always bring in special guests like Christina Aguilera, like Cardi B, who right. does an exceptional turn on, on uh, girls like you. And, you know, that keeps them hip and current, but I don't think in the grand scheme of things it will mean a whole lot to them as respected artists. Perhaps that's not what they want to be anyway. Well, you know, the halftime thing. <laughs> it's <laughs> okay. been hashed over. Let's yes. let's face it. But yeah. I, I feel like I need to add my, my two cents worth. The halftime show is a tough gig, okay? Yes. It's a massive showcase, but it's kind of an artificial construct. You, as an artist, have got 10, 12, 13 minutes 
to whip the crowd into a froth that normally takes a couple of hours. And you don't get paid. <laughs> um, arguably, some have succeeded more than others, like Prince or Beyonce. But for me, Maroon 5 laid an egg. I mean, truthfully, here's the honest part. Mm. <laughs> my lack of interest in the Super Bowl perfectly matches my feelings about Maroon 5. <laughs> it's very professional, and there's a lot of spectacle involved, but I'm just sort of disengaged by the bigness of it all. Mm-hmm. I mean, Maroon 5 is, you know, they they have really well-written songs, and Adam Levine's a really accomplished singer. But you know what? There's so much music in the world that moves and inspires me and makes me glad to be alive that Maroon 5 is like a triumph of competence. And that's not enough. Wow. Wow. It's so funny. I read the next day after the uh, Super Bowl, I read, I believe it was in either in the Washington Post or the New York Times, that said you can kind of feel Maroon 5's music being erased from your memory about a second <laughs> after it goes into it. Like it was so it was so damning about kind of their legacy and the power of their music. But again, they are successful. Whether they will remain successful remains to be seen. Because I do believe that they lost a certain coolness factor with that performance on the Super Bowl. And I think it may hurt them in the long run in terms of chart success. But they have had enough hits, as evidenced by the number of hits they played just in their you know 13-minute set at the Super Bowl. They have enough hits to rely on in case they ever want to take a residency somewhere in New York or in Vegas or something like that, that they mm-hmm. will remain mm-hmm. a viable band in terms of fan interest, I think, for a few years to come. This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Tom Jokic with Christopher Ward, and time now for an epic absolutely epic edition (laughs) of When Rock Stars Attack. Oh, this is a good one. You know, Tom, it's an open question as to whether rock stars have more vitriolic feelings about the press or record labels (laughs) and the industry in general for horrors wanting to actually sell some product. Yeah. Anyway, perhaps disdain for their audiences would come third or at least be in a tie with former band members. (laughs) Today's winner... (laughs) Is the press. Woohoo! <laughs> so here, yeah, here are the Bee Gees with a profile of a reviewer. Let's pick a reviewer. Out. He sat there and he do not look happy about nothing. Yeah. You know, he doesn't yeah, clap, he doesn't, he doesn't show any expression, he's just. He's the only one sitting down. That's, you know, you know the guy that's writing you at the show. And in the end, he's, he's the one that's sitting you know? down all the time. He's the yeah, one that stands up with look his head, you know. He's, he's, he's the one that usually gets just goes, gets up and walks out before the end of the show. And they get up and things like that and you see the papers and they say, Nostalgia returned to Milwaukee. <laughs> <laughs> the other way to pick out the reviewers of the show is that he's always that much older than everybody else in the house. <laughs> <laughs> you can always tell, you know. It was a typical thing. That, you know, it was a telephone interview we had to do. I think it was from uh, Chicago, I think, I'm not sure. Well, I had to phone this guy and I spoke to him and he said, Well, he's not him, but I've just started today and I'm supposed to do it. I don't even know about you guys. So what do you do? Can you give us a quick history? <laughs> Can you give us a quick rundown? That guy, that guy, because he just started, wrote a fantastic review. Yeah. You know, he was really good, and he wrote a beautiful interview, and, and, and he said everything that I said, he printed. No no <laughs> word was missed. Pushed his P's and Q's. Yeah, pushed the P's and Q's in the F's. <laughs> and it was lovely. You know, he did a lovely interview. And this guy was probably the... He said, I've only just started today, and I'm supposed to do this job. Uh, what do you guys do? I said, well, one of us play a violin, and then the guy juggles. Uh, <laughs> parts. They didn't, he just couldn't give us a quick history. You know, I said, don't you have a bio in front of you or anything? And he said, yes, no. I'll write it down. Oh, my God, that's so funny. They're the Bee Gees, <laughs> kind of doing their imitation of what a reviewer looks like and sounds like. Well, they were having fun with it, but John Wetton and Carl Palmer of Asia were not. 
Okay, so we're jumping ahead to other artists. Okay, I see how we're doing this. Yeah, Asia weren't critical darlings, to put it mildly, but their sales more than compensated, I would have to think. Now, Palmer had already been through this kind of thing with Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. Anyway, here John Wetton and Carl Palmer explain their choices. We've tried to do everything the least that people would expect, you know, um, for instance, you know, to make short songs, which are, you know, very heavily vocalised and um, harmonies. People would not expect that from a group if you just saw the four names. And, of course, if we'd made a, an album that was totally self-indulgent and with long solos and stuff, it wouldn't sell, but it probably might get, um, might get critically acclaimed. Mm-hmm. Right, here today, gone tomorrow. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, we can't win with the critics, whichever way we turn. If we'd done the long, self-indulgent solos, they, they would have criticised us for being uh, rooted in the 70s and late 60s. Now we've made an album with short songs, and they say we're selling out. You're right, exactly. Yes. <laughs> you can't win, but yeah. we, uh, what I, I think is... You can never of, try to please them anyway. No, we don't you, want and to. And you know that. The, uh, the proof of the pudding is the fact that a lot of people have bought it, and it's very popular, and people exactly. like it. Oh, yeah, so it's damned if they do and damned if they don't, and no matter what, the critics are not going to like them. And that Asia album, I was a real sucker for that album when it came out. You know, Only Time Will Tell and Heat of the Moment. They were great pop songs. But in the grand scheme of things, um, Asia, I don't think, made the mark that they probably wanted to artistically. But man, those hits were huge. And they dined out on those massive songs for years to come. I never, ever want to hear that music again. <laughs> as long as I live. Oh, come on. Heat of the Moment is great. It's a great song. No, it's not. No, it's not. <laughs> okay. All right. <clears throat> we have to just agree to disagree, sir. Right. Tom, I can't wait to hear the rest of your interview with Paul Stanley. It's no surprise that he doesn't care for critics, given that Kiss have been almost universally reviled through the years. But his measured tone and downright reasonableness are refreshing. Doing what you're doing is, is, is you branching out in a way that you already knew you could. Isn't it important, a little bit important, to get some of that media credibility so that when you want to do something else, it's, it's easier for that door to be open for you? Absolutely not. The media is so unimportant. The only person who finds the media, particularly critics, important are the critics. I've made a career of never being approved by the media. You know, once again, I think that the the vehemence or the the extent of people's dislike of what I do or the, the fact that they want to never see the good in it, you know, that's really their problem. You know, um, there's too many people in the world who are my friends to spend too much time worrying about the people who, who aren't. At what point did you realize that? Early on, um, when when Kiss started filling arenas with people going crazy, and there was one person in a newspaper writing a review that I didn't even recognize. You know, it's very strange when you read a review and you go, was this guy at the same place I was? And most of them are bent on trying to tell you in one form or another that they know more than you, mm-hmm. and that they can show you why what you like isn't worth liking, and they know what the really good stuff is. Bottom line is most of, in music, uh, if you read a critic's top 10 albums, most of them are albums nobody's ever heard because they're more bent on telling everybody that they know what's really good. And nobody's really interested. As you'll hear in an upcoming episode, Christopher, I was a real fan of meeting Paul Stanley, and I thought he was really good when he was talking about the critics there. Okay, who's next on When Rock Stars Attack? Next up, Tom? Robert Plant. Okay. He talks about the timeless sport of dealing with critics and fighting the term heavy metal. I suppose when critics knock something, 
each individual critic only they know why they knock it you know a critic will knock something usually because it has a great magnitude of success for a startup that's one of the most basic reasons you know i don't know you know i mean the thing was it we always tried to do what we did with an open face and to do what we still will do with an open face with the least amount of propaganda so that we didn't have to sort of dance with the critics if you like that again sort of went against the grain but i mean in the in the early years they probably hadn't they probably weren't ready for what they saw you know i mean it might have seemed an unholy racket to to people in the beginning perhaps the sound system was bad the worst thing about it by and large is that there was always this heavy metal thing that we got labeled with which was a real you know i mean on the first album we had acoustic stuff Babe, I'm going to leave you. Your time is going to come. The second album, Ramble On, and the third album, half of it was acoustic. And even then, we were the heavy metal band. It was sort of a bit enraging, really. It left me furious because we we tried to start spreading out like we have ended up doing. You know, we were a long way from Kashmir, but we were a lot farther away from the MC5 that most people saw. What a great line. He's actually kind of sympathetic to the critics there by realizing that they didn't even, wouldn't have gotten Led Zeppelin. His quote is, it must have seemed like an unholy racket to people in the beginning. (laughs) (laughs) He is self-aware, I think. You know, and it's very interesting that Robert Plant, Led Zeppelin, and Rolling Stone magazine did not have a good relationship, mostly because of Rolling Stone's horrible criticism of those early Led Zeppelin albums and it took a lot of work to even get them to agree to sit down for an interview which they eventually did and I think it was Cameron Crowe who was I think 15, 16 at the time who was the one who did the interview that eventually got them on the cover and in the pages of Rolling Stone with an interview. So let's keep going with When Rock Stars Attack. This one is kind of funny. We're going to close out with not a big name like Robert Plant or Paul Stanley, or any of the other artists that we've talked about, the Bee Gees. This is funny, because it's Leo Sayer. And this comment (laughs) that he makes did not exactly work out the way he had planned. Okay, Leo Sayer, fairly big in the UK, but only really had three hits here. And Leo had a pretty high opinion of himself when this clip was recorded, especially in the way he compared himself very favorably to Elton John. But I would think that I stand a lot better chance than Elton of going further than Elton because I don't think I will let the Hollywood sort of showbiz sort of tinsel thing take me over in the way that it's taken him over. And I feel the naturalness has gone from his music. Oh, ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Leo when where Sayer. are they now's attack? <laughs> <laughs> so here's an interesting Leo Sayer story. He was in Memphis mm. in 1977 and arranged a visit to meet Elvis Presley because Leo was a pretty big deal at the time. He'd had a couple hits on the charts with You Make Me Feel Like Dancing and When I Need You, both of uh, which I think are very good songs. But on the day that he planned to go to Graceland to meet the king, that is the day that Elvis Presley died. Okay, so let's check in with some music news. Earlier on the show, we were talking about Queen, and one of the former lead singers of Queen was Paul Rogers, who probably a good dozen years ago, maybe longer, uh, was a replacement for Freddie Mercury briefly. Of course, Paul Rogers is best known for his work with the group Bad Company, also free, but Bad Company 
apparently is in the studio just kicking things around and seeing what we've got, says Paul Rogers. They're putting together a studio album, and it would be their first studio album in 23 years. Then they also have scheduled tour dates with ZZ Top and Cheap Trick in May and Leonard Skinner later in the summer. Very interesting story about them. Uh, Casey Musgrave's big winner at the Grammys recently will be a presenter this weekend at the Oscars, so we'll see what she's going to present. Ozzy Osbourne has been forced to cancel more tour dates because of his recovery from pneumonia. He had previously scrapped the UK and European legs of his No More Tours too. He's also now had to cancel shows in Australia, New Zealand, and Japan. And Randy Bachman will get a full-length feature documentary about his career coming on March 26th. Bachman is what it's called, and we'll cover his early days in Winnipeg and his success with The Guess Who and BTO. And Randy Bachman is one of the most interesting people to ever pick up a guitar in Canadian music. Can't wait for that. That does it for this week for Famous Lost Words. Special thanks to our producer, Adam Karsh, and also thanks to Roger Ashby, Marilyn Dennis, May Potts, and Rick Ringer for their great work on the interviews that we heard today. Don't forget, the best way to support Famous Lost Words is to listen to past episodes on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you hear your favorite podcast.